Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lusgarten. Today, I'm talking with Drs. Mary Fernandez and Quincy Gunadi about the costs of doctoral education in counseling and clinical psychology. Each of them have been intimately involved with graduate student advocacy. Mary is a clinical neuropsychology postdoctoral fellow at the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center. She earned her clinical psychology PhD degree from Georgia State University and was the chair of the American Psychological Association of Graduate Students, APAGS, in 2021. Quincy earned her counseling psychology PsyD degree from St. Mary's University of Minnesota and is actually currently the chair of APAGS for 2023. Together, along with a third co-author, they wrote a powerful article for the behavior therapist entitled, The More You Know, The More You Owe, The Cumulative Impacts of Doctoral Psychology Financial Burden, which is the focus of today's podcast. Thank you both for being here today and welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, as you know, we've been talking, I think, for months at this point to prepare for this podcast and talk a little bit about your your article. I wish you all were part of my doctoral program and my experience, because in talking with you to prepare for our episode today, I just felt like I'm in good company here. Like you all are, you know, talking about such an important issue, fighting the good fight, but also advocating for some really, really important changes. So I want to talk about this this idea of what a doctoral psychology education costs, because in reading your article, I was stunned. My eyes were so wide open. And I thought, gosh, as an applicant, even as a student, even as a graduate of a program now, I'm thinking, I I didn't even know how much this all cumulatively cost me or could have cost someone else. So I want to t- take a look at your your article, but also what you've learned in this process. Um, even preparing for this episode, I, I, like I say, I'm like this is nightmarish. I, in reading your article, you you have this really handy table that breaks down some of the common costs, and it, I think it totaled nearly three hundred thousand dollars. So take us through, as listeners, take us through how we get there. How do we get to three hundred thousand dollars for a, a doctoral education in counseling or clinical psych? Yeah, um, it was pretty stunning to us too. Um, And before I dive into that, I just want to also acknowledge um, our third co-author who wanted to be here but wasn't able to for logistical reasons, Dr. Blanca Angel, um, who was also a past chair of APAGS and was instrumental in making, uh, you know, this product come to life. Um, The table that we include in the article um, is actually um, because of a very helpful reviewer comment. Um, We initially had the numbers listed in narrative form, just describing them in text. And the reviewer said, I think it could be a lot more impactful if you added it up in a table and had a bottom line that people could look at and sit with. Um, And that was such a helpful um, suggestion, really grateful to whoever that reviewer was. Um, And so we took that advice and put it in. And um, it is probably the thing that I've heard most people comment on in the paper, uh, because it puts into reality the amount of money that we not only spend, but also lose in the process Mm -hmm. of being in graduate school. Um, And I will say that 
all of the items that we've included are probably conservative estimates of the total amount we actually do spend. So to walk you through the table, um, we start with, you know, just the, the very beginning of the process for someone who's interested in grad school, and that's the application stage. Although people might spend money even prior to that stage in preparing to become competitive for graduate school. Um, so another example of how this is probably a conser conservative estimate. So with applications, we know that those, those prices can range anywhere from $200 to $500, depending on how many schools you apply to, whether or not they um, waive the fee, whether or not there are additional fees for supplements and things like that. Um, and of course, until recently, most graduate programs required the GRE, and not just the general GRE, but also the psychology subject GRE. So those costs range from $200 to $900, depending on how many subject exams you're taking. Um, then there's the in-person interview costs. And again, this was prior to the pandemic, people were spending thousands of dollars traveling in person to the site that they would be interviewing at without any reimbursement or compensation from the site itself. Some programs did tend to help, but many clinical or counseling or school psychology programs did not. Um, and we're grateful that there's been a shift to virtual interviews more recently, um, but there are still some programs that are considering bringing back the in-person um, interviews, which brings this cost back into consideration. Um, then you factor in the relocation costs, and this is an estimate from some articles that have considered um, you know, cross-country relocation, and that can range from $2,000 to $6,000. Um, just the cost of moving your entire, you know, all of your belongings, um, renting trucks or renting, moving equipment, gathering support when you move there, like to unpack and things like that, um, all of those costs add up. Um, then we have a big caveat for tuition, because this ranges so widely based on programs that um, include some sort of remittance for tuition or programs that don't and you have to pay out of state tuition for. So that ranges from $11,000 to $34,000, depending on where you are, for most public institutions. Um, that too is a caveat because some private institutions might cost higher. Right. Um, then you include healthcare and health insurance coverage. Um, some programs offered at, at a slightly discounted rate, still it might range for from 1,500 to 2,500 per year for six years. That's if you're lucky and have good health insurance or at least have access to health insurance. If you don't have dental and vision insurance, you're spending even more money to get that coverage because you might have a, you know, a pre-existing condition or something that you need to make sure you have coverage for. Um, so we're in grad school, we've made it through five years, next phase of the HSP pipeline is internship, which is required to earn your degree. When you're an internship, you're applying to several programs, the recommended amount, I believe, is anywhere from 12 to 15, and there you're spending at least $498 if you're following the recommended amount of sites. If it's a year where the, the um, odds are against you because there are so many more students than there are match sites, then you're probably applying to more sites um, mm -hmm. to make sure that you're covered. Or worst case scenario, you don't match. You're spending another year in grad school and then you're applying again, spending another $500 on this process. Um, again, prior to the pandemic, we used to have in-person interview costs for all of the interviews you were invited to. Again, it averaged $2,000, which is very difficult, um, especially on the grad student stipend that many folks are making if they're earning one. 
Mm -hmm. um, licensure requirements range from $800 to $2,000, depending on what state you're in. Um, that includes things like the fees for EPPP, fees for the licensure application itself, um, getting fingerprinted, background checks, um, taking the jurisprudence exam, all of those costs add up. Um, and then again, you're relocating for internship in most cases. So another 2,200, range um, expenditure. And we're not even including the cost of rent, food, um, you know, basic supplies that we might need. So if you factor that in as well, it's another 38,000 on average per year based on the US Bureau of Labor Statistics. So all of that together, amounts to about $300,000. And that's not including the money that you're losing out on if you had taken another position instead, where you were earning perhaps 80,000, 90,000, whatever, in a consulting position right out of undergraduate. Um, so there's a significant financial investment that folks make when they decide to pursue doctorate education in psychology. Right. And I think in some ways, as you, thank you for breaking that down, Mary. And, and in some ways, as you you speak to that last point, it, it, it's huge. It, so we're talking about this in some ways, what seems like a huge number, 300,000. But I think repeatedly, you were kind of emphasizing this may be a conservative number, especially when we think about delayed income or no income, or the, the career trajectory that you may have taken if you had just gone from like an undergraduate degree right into the workforce and the lost wages that would, might be associated with that over time. Wow. Yeah. The other pieces we didn't include but matter, especially from an equity standpoint, are folks who have children who have to consider costs of childcare, mm -hmm. folks who take care of elderly pa uh, parents or spouses with you know disabilities or other health conditions, um, and they might have to consider additional costs um, factored into you know planning for graduate school. So there, this is very much a conservative estimate, and um, we anticipate with inflation that it's only going to grow over the next several years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Mary, you're kind of oh, Quincy, go ahead. I was just gonna add on to um and in support of what Mary just mentioned, where um oftentimes we think about a student and we picture a traditional student, and sometimes we forget um to consider for the needs of non-traditional students all of the considerations that Mary just mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Quincy, to that point, I'd love to to hear more about what you all found or what you all have have come to understand about how this is distributed. How are these costs distributed? It sounds like there's a great deal of inequity even in the distribution of these costs. Yeah, absolutely. I And I tend to look at this from a, a, a systemic lens where there are so many different factors at play here. You have the individual um, factors where, you know, is what is the student bringing with them, right? Are they a traditional student, non-traditional student? Who do they have to care for? Um, do they have access to resources or do they have financial privilege or not? Um, that really sets off the, the starting ground for where students start. Um, and that's a huge um, difference when we look mm -hmm. across various students. Mm -hmm. um, Mary mentioned kind of earlier where it ranges so widely across different programs. We have, you know, the differences across public, private, for-profit, non-profit. Mm -hmm. um, we have various different 
tracks in psychology. So there's counseling, clinical, educational, applied, social. There's so many different tracks with different years as well in the program. Um, so it's it can be really intimidating as a student considering to go into grad school to consider all of these numbers. Right. Right. Yeah. I think about a, a concept that hopefully we can talk a little bit more as, as we go through today's episode too, around sort of like informed consent about what this package might cost at one location versus another. Like you might have this great program that that looks fantastic and, and you might like the people there, but wow, oh my gosh, if you knew the full package cost of that place versus maybe an alternative, it may change your decision-making or at least inform your decision-making. Um, but as we talk about you know, uh, student costs and and potential debt, right? Because you're what so far everything we've been talking about is this might cost us, but what we haven't necessarily talked about is oftentimes people are using student loans to afford that cost, and it makes me think about our field as health service psychologists, but even allied mental health or allied health fields in general. People like nurses, physician assistants, and physicians who are known to suffer massive financial costs for the decisions they are making to, to educate themselves and to, to advocate for others in that process. So let's say that I've spent $300,000 on my doctoral education in counseling psychology. What do I stand to make in the field after that five, seven years of education, both pre-doc, doc, post-doc education? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, based on the research that we found, and this was data from 2015, right? Mm. Um, things might have changed now and in 2023, where the average median annual salary for an early career psychologist was about 60000 um, mm. And it can range depending on the, the, um, the position or the job or the occupation mm. that you select. Um, you know, we found that the lowest were typically for teaching positions and the highest might be for management positions. Mm -hmm. Wow. And wow. you might also, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, just just uh, to consider um, a lot of states might require postdoctoral hours in order to get licensed even. So the postdoctorate salary is much lower um, than beginning in, an, in a starting position. Um, most postdocs, I think, range from 40,000 to about 80, 90,000, depending on um, you know, depending on the site you're applying to, I know the average VA postdoc salary, I believe, is around $48,000, And then there's um, adjustments for the locality or the area that you're in. Um, private practice postdoc positions might be slightly higher, but still we're not anywhere close to being able to pay off the massive debt that folks have incurred by that point, um, especially if you have to do more than one or two years of postdoctoral fellowship. Right. Right. Well, I want to go back to that idea that I said this word afford and what it looks like to afford graduate school, I think, is different for, for everyone. How do people afford graduate school? Is it student loans predominantly? Are we seeing that it's family? Is it credit cards? What did you learn? I think you touched on a really important point where we often don't talk about um, is credit card debt. Mm -hmm. Right. We I feel like the conversation around student loans and financial burden is often around student loans. And if you forget that students rack up a lot of credit card debt, um, especially when they can't afford to 
earn income through their programs. Um, they have sudden life costs that spring up on them. Um, and that that really impacts their future um, mm -hmm. and impacts the things that they can they can get in the future once they graduate. Right, right. Yeah, future oriented is actually where I'm going in my brain too during our conversation together because it, it's today's cost or today's debt, but it has a number of ramifications for years to follow. And I'm having these flashbacks as we were preparing for today's episode, I was having these flashbacks back to this moment in my, I think it was my first year of graduate school. I had already collected some student loans from previous education. So I was entering in with some student loan debt and my uh, teaching assistantship, which I was privileged to at least have something like that was like, I don't even remember how they calculated this, maybe a third time or a, 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 a it was like a three eighth time or something like that. I, I, I couldn't even figure out what the, the, the fraction was. It certainly wasn't enough money to live off of and not even enough to pay my rent at the time. And so I was continuing to need to take out student loans in the process. And I remember having a, a partner at the time who really like just point blank asked me, you know, how, how much do you have? And I remember feeling so like ashamed, but at the same point, like really wanting to embrace and like own that, hey, I'm trying to invest in myself and my education. And I could see that that person was really shocked, really shocked. And, and I realized in that moment, wow, the financial decisions we're making may have great ramifications, both personally, professionally, and otherwise for years to come. And I'm thinking about how you all found this changes people's futures. Does it change their retirement planning or their marriages? Or does it change the kinds of jobs people take? What, what do we know? Oh, it absolutely affects the trajectory of folks' lives. We, um, uh, in addition to credit card debt, as Quincy mentioned, a lot of people will actually move back home with their parents um, in order to afford um, you know, graduate school or afford the lifestyle following graduate school. Um, and that itself might impact their plans for personal or professional growth. Um, we, in one of the 2016 studies that we cited in the paper um, by Dr. Doran, who's also actually a past chair of APAGs, and um, mm -hmm. I think this study was done with um, some APAG support, 85.6% um, of graduate students at that time in 2016 reported that there were delays in their life milestones. Wow. Um, so retirement planning, buying a house, having children, getting married, mm -hmm. um, all of these are very costly but necessary parts of our lives if we, you know, if we want to pursue any of them. And so having debt or incurring debt while planning for some of these large life milestones is just not feasible. So you see delays in personal milestones, but you also see career de delays sometimes. Someone might apply for a job that they're less excited about or perhaps less suited for, but they know is a higher mm -hmm. income. And that might delay their trajectory for the goal position that they've been aspiring to for most of their grad career. Um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of folks who don't always want to enter private practice, but know that it's a good way to at least start to earn back some of the money that they've been losing out on before they go into more public service positions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually where we see a lot of loss 
gaps um, for public service positions or for positions in rural areas of the country too, um, where the cost of living might be lower, but the pay is just not commensurate with um, the amount of debt that needs to be paid back. So when we think about this, it impacts the person, the psychologist, but it also impacts communities. It impacts um, the folks we're trying to serve. It impacts, in some cases, at least for me, the VA veterans. It impacts so many groups of people who are probably already disadvantaged and mm -hmm. are further burdened by our debt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Mary, I, I think about programs like PSLF or the Public Student Loan Forgiveness programs as, as being, I think, uh, the hope that it would help encourage people to go out into communities that are traditionally underserved or marginalized and, and try to help. And yet even those programs, as we know, have sometimes had changes over time or threats to, to how the programs will work. And so, wow, that kind of instability, if I were back in that position, if I put my shoes in that position, that kind of instability still may inform the decisions I take. Because I don't know, well, will it be here for the next presidency or the next Congress, or what will it be like in four years? And I we have, yeah, go ahead. Can I also add a little bit where, you know, those programs are, are really so important to reach underrepresented students, and there are also limits to that program. Mm -hmm. I think about, um, so I'm an international student, and there are mm -hmm. so much limits to um, the grants that I can apply for. So international students are not allowed to get federal um, grants. Mm -hmm. So that that already limits um, resources that we can get. Right. Um, and we when we also think about access to loans, um, mm -hmm. that's really hard to get. Um, you know, for international students, we have to get a, an American to co-sign a loan. So that's really hard to put the pressure too on 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 a local person um, mm -hmm. to sign mm -hmm. this really big amount of money. Absolutely. And Quincy, thank you so much for bringing in the, the, the context and the diversity of our student population and, and the people that are going through these programs. Like you, there are various programs that may not even be accessible to you. That, that again, even if you want to work in these communities of, in, in need, you may be hampered from being able to do so. And that, that's a pretty scary thing. You know, we've been talking a lot about the cost in a financial way, but I'm also curious about the impact on our mental health as students and graduates of programs when these are the burdens. Yeah, it is definitely very stressful. And we see, we see that on all the surveys that we've, you know, conducted over the past several years. Um, and I will say it's not specific to psychology graduate students. It's true for any students um, or any individual who is taking on larger amounts of debt than they can feas feasibly pay off, um, or at least foresee being able to pay off. Um, and the, the mental health stress of graduate school is enough mm -hmm. Uh, to impact somebody's functionality. Imagine then adding the stress of, can I pay for tomorrow's meal? Do I have enough in my bank account to you know, pay for parking this month if I need to do that? Or do I have enough to make sure that at least my rent goes through? Um, you know, I've recently had an unfortunate experience where because of systemic problems at the site that I'm at, I have, I wasn't paid for a very, very long time. Um, and those examples come up, they're not infrequent. And, um, you know, there are errors that lead to these problems. It's, you know, it's understandable. 
Um, and at the same time, the impact of that loss of that uncertainty in the immediate and in the you know distant you know time span is just so indescribable. I anytime I talk about it with my mentors now, I say that's the most stressed I have been in the past six years, not knowing whether or not I could pay rent, whether or not I would need my partner to help support me more than he can, because he's not making a whole lot either, needing to borrow from others. Thank goodness I have the privilege of being able to do that. But just the stress of that um, is very hard to quantify and to describe, but it very much exists. And students have been talking about it for a long time. Um, but unfortunately, for some reason, um, maybe we're just not hearing it as a, as a society, as a community. I think there's a lot of stigma associated with stress around financial burden. Um, and a lot of times people say things like, well, we dealt with it too. Um, yeah. Or maybe if you buy fewer avocados, <laughs> silly. Um, but that, that kind of feedback further stigmatizes and in some way victim blames um, the student for, for carrying the burden that they have when that's definitely not um, you know, not the case. So that that shame or that um, that uh, feeling of isolation compounds with the stress from not having the funds to just afford living. They want to echo Mary too, where I'm I'm going to put my counseling hat on, where it's a lot of existential threat that Mary mm -hmm. just mentioned, right? Kind of, what is my future? Do I even know what my future is going to look like? Um, and if you can't have a grasp, um, it's hard to plan for your future. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Quincy, you're you're so right. I mean, I'm guessing to to get to where you both are in your careers, you you probably have a, a little bit of this something. It's a hunch, but that is that you know to get through these programs, you inherently have to be a certain level of planner, like a, a certain level of what's coming down in my future in the next couple of years whether that's the next practicum site or internship or postdoc or future career. Like we are, we work on those academic schedules or those academic calendars for much of our life, especially early on as, as uh, ECPs or early, early career professionals. So, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm just astounded at all of these, like you say, existential threats, like that makes it pretty darn tough to keep going in the moment when you're not sure where you're going to end up. And you know everything that we've been talking about has also been grounded in stats that we're pulling from um, from previous studies, but also from economic research, uh, labor statistics, for instance. And those change over time. And in fact, we're going through a moment of pretty significant economic change right now as we're recording this, where inflation, I think, in the year 2022 was six and a half percent on an annual basis. Personally, I, I've seen huge rising costs in my my food that I pay for transportation, whether that's gas or, you know, whatever, whatever you use to get around that the, the diapers, even for my child have cost more all of a sudden. I mean, you name it, everything is getting a price markup. And the we can't afford eggs my, now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, even a dozen eggs are like two, three times more than I remember seeing them in past years. And, and so I'm just like, wow, that, that used to be a staple of my diet, the, one of the cheapest things in it. And so in this high inflation period, I'm, I'm pained. I'm not a graduate student anymore, but I'm pained imagining because my stipend was fixed. It was set. There was so little that I could even do to control that. And I had a stipend, which again, in our context is a privilege nonetheless. 
So I'm thinking like, how are graduate students currently doing this? Again, massive change over the last couple of years. I don't know what the universities are doing to account for that, but what are graduate students going through? I think it's, um, I think the question is, are they surviving it? Are they mm-hmm. sufficiently managing? Um, I think that answer is going to change depending on who you speak to. I think some people might be just getting by. Um, others might have resources or funds or savings that they can draw on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some others might be making very difficult decisions about, is this sustainable? Do I want to stay in this field? Or is it time for me to drop out, maybe come back later if I have yeah. more savings? Mm-hmm. Um, these are difficult decisions that students make pretty often. And, um, you know, just like you said, a change in eggs and the price of eggs and gas. That was a huge gas shortage last year that really Mm -hmm. impacted a lot of people, um, especially those living in areas where there isn't public transportation to rely on in case you're, you know, entirely reliant on your car. Um, And that itself, I remember, um, made a huge impact on, do I take this practicum or not? It's going to be 30 minutes away. How am I going to afford that? Um, do I even do a practicum this year? Do I delay my graduate training by a year in order to make ends meet? Um, so there's, there's a lot, I think, uh, a lot of very variability in how folks manage, but I think the better question to be asking is, are folks managing? Are they currently able to cope? And I think about too, like the ripple effect of how accessible programs are in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it might only be accessible to people with financial privilege. So then again, we're not getting as much representation in the workforce or are, mm-hmm. will we get representation in the workforce? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just absolutely. to speak to that point a little bit, um, because I, I know that um, this was a focus or um, we contextualize the paper and the disparities, but I want to also just explicitly name them because of how significant it is. Um, the disparities along social demographics are, you cannot deny that they exist. It's its right there blatantly in front of us. Um, Black and Latinx students, for example, tend to borrow so much more than their white peers. Sometimes the estimates are as high as 118% more than their white peers. Um, we're not sure exactly what contributes to this. It's probably an intersection with socioeconomic status, but it might also be Um, the private loan market that might be preying on certain students. And we know that that happens. Um, There's a racial wage gap once these students enter the workforce that again, disadvantages them, even though they already have a higher level of debt. Um, Folks from lower socioeconomic statuses, in addition to not having the the pillow um, or the cushion or, and also not having the financial you know, resources to call upon, they end up borrowing about 25% more um, on average. And even it, within that um, group, we know that women from lower socioeconomic statuses borrow more than men from lower socioeconomic statuses. And they borrow more from women from higher socioeconomic statuses. So it's definitely, there's this compounding intersectionality that we see across the board. Um, We know that there are um, uh, a a lot of barriers for students, as Quincy mentioned, from international backgrounds. And we don't have that much data about that actually, because that's, there's just 
it's an area of research that has not been explored a, a whole lot. And part of that is probably because it's difficult to tap into um, some of these students because they're so dis dis disenfranchised from mm -hmm. a large part of our education system. Um, and then one other thing just to mention, um, it's it, we didn't talk about it a whole lot, but depending on the type of program you go to, PsyD programs tend to incur much more debt than PhD programs. And a lot of times it's because PsyDs tend to be for-profit institutions. Um, but the, the estimates are staggered. I mean, it's 60,000 higher um, mm -hmm. levels of debt sometimes than PhD programs. Um, and if someone goes to a master's program, hoping to then eventually enter a PhD program, they're incurring about $75,000 of debt just in their master's. So then add that to their PhD or PsyD program, and now you've doubled almost the debt you're expecting. So there are just so many inequalities and, dis and disparities that we see across various um, social identities. And I think it's important to contextualize that, um, especially as we talk about equity and diversity and inclusion, as, as Quincy mentioned. Yeah, Mary, thank you for, for bringing in the intersectionality into this conversation too. I think there's perhaps I'll go so far as to say a myth that's often perpetuated that education will be the great equalizer. And much of what you're sharing is that everything around what we're talking about, this, this block of time is greatly unequal. And so even if, even if it helps, there's so many things that will then bring that down. And, and that, you know, just even negotiating your first salary may be different based on racial or ethnic identity. My gosh. I mean, so we're already even thinking, I have the same degree or I have the same education background that may already be different. And so I, I it, again, it's, it's another moment where I'm just thinking, wow, this is a really stunning, I think, lesson and, and for us all to think about the, the cumulative impacts and costs um, on our students today or prospective students. And I, I really appreciate being able to have both of you on the program, both as the former chair of APAGS and the current chair of APAGS. And I, I've been really wondering throughout our conversation what the organization can or is doing about this. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I, I, I like to think about we're just one piece of the puzzle, right? This is a systemic problem. And, and there's so much work that everyone um, needs to do, right? Um, and I'm thinking in terms of APACs, that's one of our pillars. That's something that we take seriously, fin students' financial burden. Um, we really look at increasing awareness amongst the stakeholders, all the systems. We want to name the different the differential impact of financial burden, as Mary mentioned, how it looks so differently based on people's social identities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we also want to name um, name it as as shown in our article that we we published. Um, I I want to really highlight one thing too that Apex have been working on in in the past few years, especially under Blanca and Mary's leadership as as the past chairs of Apex where we developed a graduate training financial burden task force that really looked into and developed resources for graduate students to consider. Um, one important tool that came out of that task force was the financial expenditure evaluation for students. And we love acronyms, so the acronym is FEES, 
Um, and that tool really looks at um, really assist students in evaluating program costs. What mm -hmm. assistance do they offer? How much does the program cost? Um, how much is your how much resources do you have coming in? So mm -hmm. that kind of have they have this tool that really helps students evaluate, is this the right choice for me? Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's easily accessible on our um, Apex website. Um, but yeah, back to kind of my earlier point where this is, we're just a piece of that puzzle. There's, this is such a big problem where we need kind of a collective movement to address it across mm -hmm. various levels. And I'll just add to that, that that same fees tool, which is pretty easy, easily Googleable, <laughs> um, is we're also hoping to be used by programs to self-evaluate um, how they're doing in terms of offering financial resources, offering financial literacy, um, supporting their students with special or unique requirements or concerns, um, evaluating the financial safety and health of their organizations or the universities that they are embedded within. Um, you know, a few years ago, um, there was a horrible, um, I guess you can call it scandal at Argosy, where a number of the students who are part of those programs um, because of financial negligence of the programs or of the university were found without a graduate program. Um, it disrupted so much of their training. I mean, the amount of debt they probably already had from going to, you know, from being at a, you know, at a for-profit um, school like that. Um, and then thinking about the delays that it resulted in, um, APAGS and APA, along with APA's advocacy office, advocated very strongly for, for those students and for, um, accountability for some of those uh, errors or, or um, you know, poor decisions that led to that mishap. So um, I think that's another example of how APAGS within the APA system is able to advocate more efficiently and effectively because of the manpower on behalf of students. Um, and even just recently, just two days ago, we've, um, we've been sending around action alerts to our members to submit um, notifications to their house representatives or to their um, to their senators requesting certain financial burden alleviation to, um, action steps. So there's power in numbers. Um, and as Quincy said, it requires a systemic approach and multiple solutions. And um, having APAGs support some of those large scale solutions is definitely um, a benefit, I think, to the student community. Right, right. Well, I want to say thank you to you both. We're we're nearing the end of our time together, and I, I, I as we're talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I, I could keep talking about this forever. Uh, like I said at the outset, I, I'm very passionate about this as well, and appreciate being able to hear what it's been like more recently and what you all have been advocating for as a group too, as a part of Apex. The the fees kind of calculation and document makes me think of the the Schumer box from credit card applications. So the Schumer box is a, I'm not going to get into the weeds, but the Schumer box was this whole process to get credit cards to really disclose their fees openly and simply and put it in a table, break it down. What will this cost over time? And it's making me think, wow, what if we had programs provide a Schumer box of the fees and everything and how it would break down and what that would cost over time. My gosh, that might be a scary thing, but it also may hold programs accountable to their students too, to be thinking about the fees. So 
I am so appreciative that you've gotten my brain spinning and going and, and thinking about these issues. Thank you for being here with me and, and with us to talk about your article and, and what y'all have been working on at Apex too. Thank you for the space and for the platform to highlight this issue. Um, I think we, uh, you know, I very much appreciate that there is a culture shift that needs to happen. And I think things like this podcast can contribute to that culture shift if more people hear about it and, and hear stories. So thank you for the space. Yeah, I really want to echo Mary. It's It's been an honor being invited onto this podcast. And, and we're hoping that this invites ongoing conversations and ongoing reflections about how are we sustaining the future of psychology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, at the end of your article, I want to quote something. It's right at the end of it. It says, the financial debt crisis of psychology students and early career professionals is a matter of equity, urgency, and ethics, and it requires coordinated advocacy so that the growing societal needs can be met. And I just want to say, wow, what a powerful comment to, to wrap up our, our talk today. Thank you again for being here. But before we go, I want to share a little information about the National Register's Internship Travel Scholarship. We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet today, and I just want to put a plug out there for it. Each applicant can apply to be considered for this $1,000 scholarship. And if you're practicing and already beyond internship like me, please consider supporting students as they work their way through their programs and their education as well. You can find out more at nationalregister.org under Tools and Services, Internship Travel Scholarship. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Console, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. Mm -hmm.